If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John 1, 8, 14, and 2 today, along with Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we are in this series called Explore God. We are working with other churches in the DFW Metroplex to look at various questions that people often ask about our faith. There's also a website that I think can be very helpful to you as you uh, investigate Christianity yourself and also help others with their questions, exploregod.com. Now, you'll recall that we began the series by looking at the question, does life have a purpose? And then we asked the question, is there a God? Our staff pastors talked about why does God allow pain and suffering? Then we discussed, is Christianity too narrow? And today, we're going to ask the question, is Jesus really God? Is Jesus really God? Now, our, our quest throughout this series is to look at what the Word of God has to say about these various questions, and so we'll be doing that today. Let me tell you how you can twist Christianity into a cult in three easy steps, okay? You want to become a cult leader, you want to twist Christianity into something that it's not, three easy steps. Number one, add to or subtract from the authority of the Bible. You see that done throughout history. You see people say, well, okay, we're only going to study Jesus's words and we won't study the rest of the Bible. We'll just study the words in red. Or some say, we're only going to study the first five books of the Bible. We'll study the Old Testament law and that's all we're going to look at. What they're doing is they're taking away from the full authority of the Word of God. The second thing is, or the, uh, the other part of that is to add to, add another source to the Bible, and you make that equivalent at least in authority. And so you'll see in some instances, uh, people will add another holy book, and so they'll add the Book of Mormon, or they'll add the Quran, and that'll become their authoritative scripture. Sometimes they add a prophet's word, somebody that they uh, revere, add his or her words to that, and make that equal to Scripture, and then you've begun to twist Christianity. And then you can also take church tradition, various things that the church has done historically uh, that are traditional forms, and, and you take that and you equate that with Scripture, and you're well on your way to twisting Christianity into a cult. The second big thing that you can do is you thingify grace. Instead of grace being a gift from God that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ, what you do is you twist that doctrine and you turn grace into a series of works. Now what this allows you to do as an aspiring cult leader is it allows you to measure people's grace. Okay, so if they, if they do the things that you tell them to do, and you can measure those through attendance, giving, participation, things like that, if they do these sacramental things, then you, you, they achieve, and then they receive more grace, and at the same time, you can control people's behavior, because whenever they don't do what they're supposed to do, then you can take grace away. Okay, so you've thingified grace. And you also give people this wonderful information, this ability whenever you thingify grace, is you give them the ability to squeal about how much better they are than everybody else. Because if they can uh, really add up a lot of grace in their account, then they can say, hey, look at all that I do, look at who I am versus you. 
poor thing. You know, and it allows them to be prideful. Now, if you do those two things, you're on your way to being a cult leader. Now, here's the third thing that you can do. Reduce Jesus to a mere human instead of God. Okay? It's okay to still revere Jesus as something that is great. Perhaps he's a prophet. Maybe he's a great prophet like Moses. Maybe he was a great example like uh, Paul Reed. Maybe he was a great political leader like, I don't know, Donald Trump. I don't know. I'm just don't, that, that, you know. But he, he, he's a great human. But make sure if you want to be an aspiring cult leader that you keep him human. He's not God. Now remember our, our question that we're dealing with today is, Jesus really God? And I think we need to start by asking the question, does the Bible make this claim? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Now the Bible teaches that God is one. And as Christians, we are monotheist as opposed to polytheist. We believe in one God. Now, we believe that that one God exists in three eternal persons. God has always been, is, and always will be uh, Trinitarian in nature. And so just as we sang holy, holy, holy today at the beginning of our service, we sing out to God, holy is our Father, holy is God's Son, and holy is His Spirit. Now, the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They have distinct attributes. They have distinct roles that they play within the economy of the divine. But they are the same in nature. They are the same in essence. They are the same in being. The Trinity is one of those core doctrines upon which Christianity stands. One person has said, if you try to explain it, you will lose your mind. But if you try to deny it, you will lose your soul. Now, the, bo- the book of John clearly makes the case that Jesus is God. Each of the Gospels kind of come at the life of Jesus from a different angle. And the Gospel of John, in particular, presents Jesus as God. He begins such in John chapter 1 and verse 1, where the Bible says, In the beginning, was the Word. Now, if you read John chapter 1, it becomes very clear to you that whenever John is referring to the Word here, he's not referring to the Bible. He is referring to Jesus as the Word of God, as the revelation of God. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then here's this statement, the Word was God. Now, notice, in the beginning. It's supposed to. It's intentional in its parallel of Genesis chapter 1. Jesus did not come into existence at Bethlehem. He was there in the beginning. He was with God, and he was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. It's a wonderful study to read Genesis chapter 1 and then to read John chapter 1 and see the great parallels between the two. So right at the beginning of John's gospel, the proclamation is that Jesus was there in the beginning. He was with God when all things were created and nothing was created 
without him because John is trying to show us that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Now in John chapter 8 and verse 48, Jesus is having a discussion with the Pharisees, with the the Jewish leaders, and so they decide to insult him really I'm looking for the right word to really cut him low. And so the Jews responded to him and they said, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan? In that audience to call somebody a Samaritan was, oh, I cannot believe you said that. Now you're going a little too far, aren't you? But they don't just say that they think Jesus is a Samaritan. They also say, and have a demon. So not only do they say that he is a a half-breed, that he doesn't belong to their people, but they also say that he is demon-possessed. And Jesus responds, I do not have a demon. On the contrary, I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my glory. The one who seeks it also judges, I assure you. If everyone keeps my word, he will never see death ever. Now he's making proclamations that only God can make there. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death ever. And then the Jews said, now we know you have a demon. Then they say, Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death ever. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Even the prophets died. Who do you pretend to be? Now, they're expecting Jesus to say, no, I'm not greater than Abraham because Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. In verse 54, Jesus responds, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. My father, you say about him, he is our God. He is the one who glorifies me. You've never known him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day. He saw it and rejoiced. In verse 57, the Jews reply, You aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, you have to kind of understand a little bit of the connotations here. Jesus is basically saying in in verse 56, Hey, I know Abraham. He's overjoyed about me being here. The Jews held Abraham in such high uh, regard that no one would say that they were greater than Abraham. And Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. It's a distinction of eternality. You recall whenever God told Moses to go in before the Pharaoh and say, let my people go, Moses said to God, who, who, who do I say is sending me? And God said to him, you tell him, the I am is sending you. Whenever the Jews thought about the absolute reality of the universe, the one who just is, they immediately turned their attention to God. The little kid comes to his dad and says, dad, who created God? The right answer to that is not, let's go talk to Pastor Lash. The right answer to that is nobody created God. God just is. He is the I am. And whenever Jesus makes this reference that before Abraham was, 
I am. He is equating himself with the eternal God of the universe. And in verse 59, there was no doubt in the audience's uh, understanding exactly what Jesus was saying because when he made this statement, they picked up stones and they were going to kill him right there. They were going to stone him. But then Jesus, who is much more than mere human, flashes his divinity. And he hides himself amongst them and he leaves the temple complex. In John chapter 14, a passage of scripture that we looked at last week, I want to continue the thought that we saw last week in verse 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do, know, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. So they're asking, Lord, show us who God is. Show us what he is like. And Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time without you knowing me? You're wanting to see the Father, Philip. Have I not been living with you for three years and you don't know me? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus tells the apostles, whenever you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You see the Father, you do not need a theophany of God because you have me. You have my presence, my life. You also have my words and then you also have my works. Now, here's what is unique about Jesus. If you look at other world religions, most of them have some type of primary figure. And this primary figure uh, lays out teachings that are perhaps significant. And they normally follow the teachings of the leader. But Jesus calls us not just to follow his teachings. Jesus calls us to follow him. As we drive from our house in Saxe to the church uh, throughout the week, sometimes we, we always go past the little Buddhist temple there in Saxe. And so not long ago, my daughters were asking questions about the Buddhist temple. And so that prompted a good conversation. And I remember one of the questions they asked me was, they said, was Buddha mean? And I said, well, no, he, he actually wasn't mean. He he told people that they were supposed to be nice. He told people that they were supposed to be very kind to each other. But people are confused because he didn't worship the true God. But when it comes to Jesus, if he's not God, then he was not a good person. He was not a nice person if he was not God because of the claims that Jesus made. Jesus said, I don't just teach truth. I am the truth. Jesus didn't just say, hey, follow my teachings and treat other people well. 
He said, follow me. He said, believe in me. He said, you will not find life apart from me. He said, I am the only way to God. Jesus made our options very, very, very narrow. And so if you really study the words of Jesus and not just listen to the sound bites, if you really study the words of Jesus, either he is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. There's not this middle area for him just to be a good guy or a great teacher. C.S. Lewis, in his landmark work, Mere Christianity, wrote these words, which surmises this very, very well. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. It's Jesus' all-or-nothing language that makes him so polarizing. The words that he spoke were very narrow, but I prefer to use the term precise. You want to know truth? I'm it. Now, it's this narrowness, it's this all-or-nothing mentality that's why atheists get so mad about something that they don't even believe in. Okay? That's why we, we have people sue to have the Ten Commandments removed from a public building, and then they do it under the cover of night. It's why your mama may encourage you at Christmas not to talk about politics or Jesus. Because whenever you talk about Jesus around Uncle Joe at Christmas time, he might get upset. People tend to get upset with Jesus things. The reason being is that Jesus presented himself as God. Have you ever wondered why Jesus did all these miracles in the gospel? You read the gospel and there's miracle after miracle after miracle. Well, Jesus' miracles were called signs because they were intended to reveal his identity and and back up his words. He didn't just talk the talk. Jesus walked the walk. And he didn't just walk the walk. He walked on water. But the greatest miracle that Jesus could do, the one miracle that would absolutely prove that he was 
who he said he is, that, that, that he is the Son of God, would be for him to rise from the dead. Now, right after the cleansing of the temple, you remember that story. In John chapter 2, Jesus predicts his death. Again, the Jews are upset with him, and so they reply to him in verse 18, What sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? You've made a ruckus here, Jesus, in the temple. You've run people out of the temple. Show us your license to do that. And in verse 19, Jesus says, okay, destroy this sanctuary and I will rise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Now imagine you are walking in the woods and you come to a fork in the trail. On one side, you see this pile of bones. And above the pile of bones, there's a sign with an arrow that says, go this way. On the other side, you see a living, breathing person. He's sitting there eating a snack and enjoying the day. And he says, I recommend you go this way. Now, which way are you going to go? Are you going to follow the dead guy? Are you going to follow the living guy? I think I'll follow the guy that rose from the dead. Now, the resurrection is the greatest proof that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is the Son of God. You say, well, how can I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, quickly, because my time is fleeting. Let me give you five reasons why you can believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are five rational reasons. Number one, because there's no body. You cannot go to Israel and see the body. They've never found the body of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, his body was under guard by the Roman Empire, and yet you still do not have the body of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament era, there were over 500 witnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And these witnesses went around throughout the early church testifying to the fact that they had seen the risen Christ. How about the lives of the disciples? When Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane, they're running for their lives. They're scared to death. They're cowardly. And then you find after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these disciples are taking the message of Jesus all over the known world, establishing churches, dying for their faith. Hey, listen, there's only so far you go for a lie. When they start threatening to crucify you, boil you in oil, take your head off, eventually you say, hey, I'm just kidding. But whenever you really believe what you're preaching, then you're willing to die for it. Radical change in the lives of the disciples. How about number four? The Bible says Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible clearly says this is what happened. And number five, an argument from experience. Millions of people over thousands of years testify that they have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus, as a historical figure, splits history in half. If you look at his impact upon the world, it is undeniable. He's impacted history, art, medicine, every area of life. Jesus has impacted. We see time as before Christ, 
after Christ, if you consider yourself any sort of serious thinker, you have to come to a conclusion on this question. Is Jesus God? A few weeks ago, I was at Olympic National Park in Washington. We were going to go hiking. And so we were looking for the Soul Duck, uh, the Soul Duck River Trailhead. So we're up kind of out in the middle of nowhere there in the mountains. But we do what any self-respecting under 50-year-old would do. We pull out our phones. <laughs> and we open Apple Maps. And we say, okay, Soul Duck Falls Trailhead. And it tells us that all, it's, it finds it. It says, you just, just follow me. And so we followed it for an hour. We followed it to Soul Duck Trails, Soul Duck Falls Trailhead. And after an hour's time, we reached Hurricane Ridge Trailhead. We were only about 90 minutes from our destination, but we do not speak of this again. <laughs> we squelched our anger and we decided maybe we might need to follow the time-tested map. Maybe we might actually have to pull out some paper and look at the map. And so we did that, and I'm glad to say that we arrived at the trailhead just as the map told us we would. Now today, there's a lot of voices that are out there telling you who Jesus is. If you Google him, you will find a lot of opinions. And it's really easy, it's really easy to get off course. But I want to remind you today that the Word of God teaches us that Jesus is God. He is God's Son. And we understand God as one God through three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so I close with this passage in Colossians chapter 1 where the Bible says He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Who is that passage referring to? It's referring to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to a time of commitment? I ask you this morning, has there ever been a time in your life where you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If there is not, I would invite you during this next song to come and pray with me to make that decision today. I want to encourage you that before you leave this room, that you take that step of faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. For those of us who are believers let me ask you this question. Does Christ have first place in everything? Are you building your life upon Him? Or is He just an addition to your life? 
Can you look at the way in which you live, the attitude that you display, the words that you speak, the relationships that you enjoy? Can you look at your life and say, in my life, Jesus has first place and I seek to honor him in everything. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the words of truth that we see in Scripture. Help us, Lord, not to twist your Scriptures. Help us, Lord, not to twist our faith. Help us, Lord, to worship you as God. Thank you, Father, for intervening into our scene so that we might be redeemed. For sending your Son to live the life that we could never live to die for our sins, and to overcome death. And we thank you, Lord, that through faith in him, we receive the unmerited gift of grace. May we live in that grace. May we extend that grace to others. And Father, may we be eternally grateful for your grace. It's in your name we pray.